Turn in your Bibles to Philippians, please. We're going to be looking at Philippians till the end of chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me ask some questions. What do you want to be like when you grow up? When I was 11, in the March of that year, I would head outside. We had a, a turnaround in our driveway where the basketball hoop was, and, and I would practice shooting free throws like Ramil Robinson. None of you know who he is, probably. He won the national championship for Michigan that year as he sank two free throws with three seconds left, down by one, cool, calm, and collected in front of 65,000 people. A 19-year-old sinks two free throws to win the championship, and I wanted to be Ramil, so I would practice shooting free throws over and over and over. A few years later, in 1992, a famous commercial came out. I'm tempted to sing it, but I won't. <clears throat> Maybe I will. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Who's Mike? Come on, Joe Smeal, who is he? Michael Jordan. I knew. I thought you would get this. That was a big deal. The Gatorade sold a lot of, a lot of product through that commercial. That was a big deal. I want to be like Mike. I, I, I was in Michigan, so I didn't like Mike. Um, but we all have people that we look up to. And that commercial that was just pushing people to be like Mike and be like him, and a lot of people tried. So who do you want to be like? What do you want to be when you grow up? Paul says later in chapter 3 of this book, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in this. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you want to know, if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, do you want to know what Christianity is like? Paul is saying, watch me as I follow Jesus. In his book, From Resurrection to Return, D.A. Carson recounts a story from his college years. He says that as a student at McGill University, I had a friend and had a Bible study for unbelievers, new believers themselves, and not wanting to be outnumbered in this Bible study, they only invited three people. And then three showed up. By week 15, or excuse me, week 5, 16 had pe people had shown up. And soon, he and his friend, who were relatively new, found themselves drowning to answer questions. And by the grace of God, there was a graduate student on campus called Dave Ward. He had been converted quite spectacularly as a young man, and he was supposed, what, what he says, a, a rough jewel. He was slapdash in your face with no tact and little polish, but he aggressively was evangelistic, powerful in his apologetics, and, and winsomely bold. So one night, he brought his two friends from the Bible study down to Dave to talk to him, and Dave bulldozed his way around the room as he always did. He gave instant coffee and then turned to the first student and said, why have you come? The student replied, well, you know, I think that university is a great time for finding out about different points of view, including different religions. So I've been reading some material on Buddhism. I've got a Hindu friend and I want to question him and I, and I should study about Islam. 
And when this Bible study, Bible study started, I thought I'd get it to know about Christianity, and that's why I've come to you. Dave looked at him for a few moments and said, sorry, I don't have time for you. He says, I, I beg your pardon? Dave said, I, listen, I, I'll loan you some books on world religions. I can show you how to understand Christianity that fits into all of this and why I think biblical Christianity is true, but you're just playing around. You're, you're a dilettante. You don't really care about these things. You're just goofing off. I'm a graduate student myself, and I don't have time. I don't, I don't have the hours at my disposal to engage in endless discussions with people who are just playing around. And then he turned to the second student. Why have you come? You can imagine trepidation. He says, I come from a home that you people call liberal. We go to the United Church, and we don't believe in things like little resurrection of Jesus. I mean, give me a break. The deity of Christ, well, that's a bit much. My home is a good home. My parents love my sister and me, and we're really close as a family. We worship God. We, we do good things in the community. What do you think you've got that I don't have? And for what seemed for two or three minutes, Dave looked at him, and then he said, watch me. The student said, beg your pardon? Dave Ward repeated what he had just said, and then he expanded, watch me. I have an extra bed, move in with me, be my guest. I'll pay for your food. You go to classes and do whatever you have to do, but you watch me. You watch me when I get up, when I interact with people, what I say, what moves me, what I live for, what I want in life. You watch me for the rest of the semester and then you tell me at the end of it whether there's a difference or not. And unbeknownst to D.A. Carson in this moment, as an immature believer, Dave was living out what Paul says in chapter 3. So who do you want to be like? Who are you watching? Who do you admire? It's an important question to think through, one that I hope resonates as we walk through this passage. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust that I want to get across here this morning in chapter 2, 19 through the end of the chapter, through 30. It's this. Christian maturity will grow when we watch those who follow Christ and honor their life of service. See, Paul is not just interested in teaching here in this letter to the Philippians, but he's also wanting the Philippians to understand what it means to follow Jesus by watching others. When we come to these 12 verses, and we'll, we'll split it up into two points, it may seem, my first reading was, this is like a travel log. You know, Paul's just kind of giving details of what's about to happen. You know, it's much different than the other verses that we've covered because there's been some teaching there. But Paul just seems to be just giving details about, about these two guys, where they're at and when they're coming. But as you see, Lord willing, these verses do have some great application for us as how we should live as Christians. And Paul will show us through the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus what it means to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. These 12 verses com complete, I believe, the teaching that Paul has been making ever since chapter 1, verse 27, to say to these church members, live lives worthy of the gospel. He's now going to, all of that teaching, show them two examples of men who live lives worthy of the gospel. These are the two that he says you should be like. These are the two that you should admire. These are the two that have shown what partnership looks like 
in a healthy relationship as Christians. They're both humble, others-focused. They provide examples of what it looks like to be a Christian. And so that's the, the main emphasis that Paul's going to make through this. So point number one, watch Timothy. Look at verse 19, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul begins and says, I have no one like him. Paul is, and then uses the same language from 127 that we saw in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is saying, I have no one like him, no one who is single-souled with me. Single-souled, meaning they're in the like-mindedness. They're on the same page as thinking about Christ and the church and ministry. They're on the same wavelength. And, and we learn from this, just this little nugget that that. Paul, ministering with someone else, wasn't foreign. Paul conducted ministry in relationship with other people. Paul was not a lone ranger. He was not a solitary apostle, but involved others in the ministry to train them, recognizing that he would not always be there. He needed to pass the baton on to those that would follow him. And Timothy had this special relationship with Paul. It's the same pattern that we see a few times in Scripture with Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and Peter and Mark. And Paul says his work has come alongside him like a son to a father. And this was significant in this time in the culture that they were at. The family was a basic social unit in Judaism and much of the Mediterranean world. In an agrarian economy, family farming was the model of how social units were functioning, and a father or son would, would go out and till the field together. And if they didn't have farming in an urban context, the family enterprise was, was what fulfilled by the father and then passed on the sons, and, and so on and so forth. And so the family was such a big key to under, understanding this. And so one of the best things you could say about the character of this man is that he's a son and that he's attentive to the, to the duties of his father. And this was so fundamental to, to the Jewish ethics. And so Paul's words here would have resonated so strongly to this church of, of who Timothy is and how important he is to ministry to not only God and, and the, the church, but to themselves and the service that he would bring to this church. And Timothy, over time, had proven himself to Paul. And Paul here is instructing the church in Philippi that he is worthy to be followed in leadership. Friends, good leaders prove themselves by serving first. Leaders only learn how to lead by learning how to be led. Some want to be leaders, but never allow themselves to be led. And what will happen is that they will become callous and unmerciful to those that they lead. Whatever leadership gifts you might think you have, unless you have learned how to be led, you will fail at leading others. It's vital that 
And, and, and Paul is saying, what better man to send to this church, to, to lead this church, to pastor this church, to elder there is Timothy. And he had the mind of Christ too, furthermore. Learning how to lead others through service, he had the mind of Christ. And, and, and we see that here as he lists it out. Having the mind of Christ means looking to the interest of others. Timothy had a, a gospel mind. And this mind affects his whole outlook of life. He was a man who cared deeply about the gospel work in Philippi because he had, he had a heavenly mindset. And, and we've often heard, and maybe you've said this, I don't know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's hogwash. It's nonsense. It's a lie. If you've said that, stop saying it. It's not helpful. The only way to be of earthly good is to be heavenly minded. And yet I wonder if too many people are so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. Timothy was not that way. He was so concerned for the welfare of the church in Philippi because he was concerned about the interest of Jesus. Love for Jesus will inevitably lead to love for others as our minds are transformed into that of Christ. When we share in his priorities to seek and to live his way for his glory. For Timothy, this church was on his mind. He cared deeply for them, just as Paul did. And Timothy's loving concern for the interest of Jesus energized his loving concern for the church. And that's the only way that ministry gets done. Having the mind of Christ looks like being genuinely concerned and taking up with the eternal well-being of God's people. Timothy looked to the interests of Jesus. And friends, when we read the New Testament, where are the interests of Jesus located? It's in his bride. It's the church. That is his program. I think we've lost sight of that, especially in the, the, the 21st century, that it's these other ministries that come along. They're, they're para-church ministries, meaning they come alongside. Para talks about the Holy Spirit, actually. So good intentions from the beginning, but those ministries are supposed to come alongside the church. The church is the, is the mode. God's people, God's bride, that's where his interests lie. And so do you have the mind of Christ like Timothy? Is the church, and when I want to drill down even more, this church interesting to you enough? Are you interested in the church? And again, I'm, when I mean church, just to make sure, I don't mean the building, okay? This is a building where we gather. But we're the church, okay? We are the church. Are you interested in the church? Or are you interested just to come on Sundays? You're welcome to come. We, we will never shut the door on you and push you out, okay? But Paul is laying this out for us of what it looks like to love and follow Jesus and have interest of what Jesus has interested in, and it's the church. And he says, furthermore, to this church, you guys can trust this guy because his interests are on Christ and his church, and that means you. 
it seems like Paul is setting up Timothy for future service. They can be rest assured that Timothy won't serve with self-centered motives, but his desires are to serve the interests of, of Christ and the unity of the church. And, and really, on all of this, he's saying, this is a man that you can watch, that you can admire. This is one that you should emulate, that you should follow and desire to be like. Not Mike, be like Timothy. Timothy is explaining through his life that this guy is worth following because he's following Jesus. So the, the lesson for us is the best leaders to follow are the ones who imitate Jesus and who are looking out for the interests and needs and concerns of others. Those leaders have been delivered from the bondage of self-obsession and they live free lives of self-forgetfulness, full of the grace of God and delight in serving others. Let's pull this back. Maybe most of you aren't going to be leaders necessarily in the church, but let me ask this question. Are you seeking to pursue the interests of Jesus by selflessly serving the church? Is your greatest spiritual concern for members of this local church spiritual growth and development or is your greatest local, your greatest concern somewhere else? Do you have the mind of Christ like that Jesus has of the church, or is your mind consumed with other things? We also learn here that we shouldn't serve the church out of the desire for admiration, but out of the desire to adore Christ. We should serve with compassion for people, not to make a name for ourselves. We should seek the good of others in light of how Jesus has poured out his life for us. This is what good friends look like. Friends, the best friends that you could find in your life are those that care for us as Christ would care for us. Do you have friends like that in your life? If not, you're in the right place to find friends that way. Friends that care more about your spiritual good than your earthly good. And being a good friend like that means we're present in their life. We speak truth graciously. We strengthen others in weakness and pray for them, even providing support if needed. We're there. We're, we're striving to serve others in that way. And Timothy strive to be that type of friend, to serve others in that way. He is one to be watched. He is one to be emulated. He is one to be admired. So that's Timothy. Second, the second half of this passage, it says we should honor Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister in my need. Let me pause there. Just so you know, there was no global banking at this time. So for the church to get funds to a person a long ways away that they were supporting that needed to be taken by a courier and probably a few people to keep it safe. And so Epaphroditus was sent on this mission. He, he, he was given money from the church of Philippi to take it to Paul. He's, he's literally a gospel gopher, okay? He's going to serve by taking money to Paul. And he's forever immortalized as a servant of Paul and to the church. Paul calls him his brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. 
Those, those terms are incredible. Wouldn't that be great to see in your tombstone someday? Of a life lived for, for, for Christ and his church, a fellow brother or sister, a worker, soldier, messenger, and minister. He was willing to serve Paul and the church with his life. And he was, a, he was someone to be respected. And so what does Paul say to the church and how they're to receive him? Look at verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was the equivalent of a worker behind the scenes. He is the volunteer who takes down chairs and sets up tables. He is the one that takes meals to someone who's sick. He is the person who visits people in the hospital. He is the one who makes coffee or cleans the parking lot when there's snow. This is a servant, and Paul makes mention of him and his service for Paul and the church because it's important for the church to recognize those who serve behind the scenes. I have news for you. I have never unlocked the church or turned the lights on on a Sunday. Someone else does that. It is not me. I think I have the easiest job probably on Sundays. Because there is so many other servants that maybe a lot of you have no idea who they are that come up and give of themselves through sickness, through health concerns, through emotional issues, through family troubles, through things that say, I'm going to serve the church because it's needed. And Paul says, that's this type of guy. This is a Christian to be admired, to be emulated. And when we see that the Christian life is fellowship and hard work and spiritual conflict and service for believers, and we understand we should give of ourselves, most likely live lives without grumbling and and, and disputing as we saw earlier. Because we're so focused on serving others and and doing it for their good and for for the good of the church. And so the church in Philippi had no reason to feel ashamed of Epaphroditus when they sent him to Paul, and they, they had no need to feel ashamed as he returns. His example is clear. He lived as a man to be emulated. But Paul says he almost didn't make it. He's, Paul says Epaphroditus was distressed. Thomas Goodwin, Goodwin in the 19th century wrote this, the word denotes a failing, a deficiency, a sinking of spirit, such as happens to men in sickness. And what we're reading is that Epaphroditus literally laid down his life to bring this money to Paul. And he was concerned that the church would think that he wasn't up to the task. He realized that t- this task was given him with absolute v- vital for the advancement of the gospel, and he stepped to the plate to serve, even if he would lose his life. You know, the, the Greek word for distress is seen elsewhere in the New Testament, but, but in particular, it's seen in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
As Jesus prayed with such fervency and anguish, he was distressed in taking our sin upon himself, even with death at the doorstop. And Epaphroditus, like Jesus, was more concerned about others than himself. But unlike Jesus, Epaphroditus was obedient to the point of death, where Jesus was obedient through death. See, even in a travelogue, even in just in Paul describing what's, who's here and where they're going, we see glimpses of the gospel. Epaphroditus sought to give over his life for the sake of another, and that's what true Christian service is. But our greatest need was more than traveling to deliver funds from ministry. Our greatest need is to be delivered from the bondage of sin. And Jesus accomplished that for us on the cross. Jesus didn't just risk his life like Epaphroditus. He gave his life over fully for us. Friend, if you're here and you've never turned your life over to Jesus Christ and placed your faith solely upon him, you need to repent of your sin of trusting in yourself and trust in Christ alone. And he is worthy of your trust. And I would love to talk to you more today. After the service, you come find me and I would love to talk more about this with you. As I reflected on this more, this passage, it might seem that Epaphroditus had been far more distressed by the effect of his illness on the church in Philippi than the illness itself. Perhaps he was so determined to fulfill his ministry that he'd been given, that he pressed on to Rome even when he became very ill. And this is very interesting to me because when we get sick, we often turn inwards, right? This has been challenging to me, especially in the last few months. When we're sick, somehow the conversation turns about ourselves, and how we're doing, and our needs, and what the struggles we have. But that's not what we read here with Epaphroditus. He was outward looking. He was one to be admired, to be emulated. And so Paul is teaching the church now that Epaphroditus will be sent back, and this is how they should receive Epaphroditus. They are to rejoice, and they're to honor him. He wants Epaphroditus' return to be an occasion filled with celebration and joy. And it is right for a church to esteem those who sacrificially give themselves for the sake of others. This, This family fellowship is a gift bought by Christ's sacrifice. But as I was reminded this week from a brother, it takes time to develop. As you know, I I encourage at any point that you email me any insights in the passage. And so I have one brother in particular who emails me quite regularly of things as he reads the passage. And this is what he said to me. I'm going to quote him, although I won't say his name. He says, you don't get this if you jump churches every two years. You don't get this if you're, if you're and I'm paraphrasing him now, if you're just sporadic with church. I'm going to go when I feel like it or I'll pop over. You don't, you don't see this. You won't see this. And he, and he says in the email, I see the reason why it matters in John 13, 35. It says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
See, that, this, this, what we're seeing in Epaphroditus and the honoring is because he's a part of this church. People know him because he's there. And, and, and what John is seeing in that passage is our testimony to the world is strengthened by our love for one another. The honor we show one another for those that serve and to sacrifice and to give of themselves for the church. The Epaphroditus is one to be watched, one to be honored. Here what we've seen in these two examples are two people who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Remember when Paul talked about that? Work it out. He's saying, here's an example. Not just teaching about this, not just head knowledge to log it away, but see it. These are people right in your midst. And so who do you admire that lines up with what Paul says about Timothy and Epaphroditus? You know, every single one of you in this room has a list of people that you admire. Whether it's an actor or an author or a YouTube personality or a friend in real life or a family member, who are you watching? Who are you that is consuming your mind about? You're, just, you're watching them in a, in a way, not just to be entertained, but because you want to be like that. And what are you looking for in someone to watch, someone to follow? Have you, have you thought much about that, or you just kind of mindlessly drift into this? Well, that seems cool, so I'll, I'll get into this, and I'll, I'll do this. What are you looking for? We all have people that we admire. We all have people that we're watching, in some ways then reflecting in our life. Even as we get old, we have people we want to be like. Yeah, I asked my kids that question, who do you want to be like? They didn't say me, but I'm not offended. <clears throat> but they, they think about it because they're watching. See, the people we admire, the people we watch, are influenced to us for good or for ill. That's how it works, friends. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's Proverbs 13, 20. If you don't believe that, you're a fool. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, and the companion of fools will suffer harm. Those you admire, those you follow, will either lead you to more wisdom or more foolishness. And so, my friends, choose carefully. Choose carefully who you admire, who you watch. Choose people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you're uncertain about who those people are here, come talk to me. I have a list. A list of people that you should admire, that you should sit down and have coffee with and ask about their life and, and admire them and emulate them. You 
You know, friends, the, the church, how does this affect us? The church is not a project to be worked on or a problem to be solved. It's not a pain that has to be dealt with. It is people who should be our life, our love, our longing, our care, our concern, and our family. The church is not an event. I know I say that a lot. But this is not just something we check off the list on Sunday morning from 10.30 to noon and then get back to real life. And if that's how you've been thinking, friends, you've been misled. The church is a people. They need to be involved in your life. People to, to build relationships with. So that when problems come, when struggles come, when questions arise and you don't know how to formulate the answers, you go to, to your family. Right? We do that in our own little family, right? I mean, we have an issue. I, I remember doing this, calling mom and dad, you know. Well, it's not just that. It's this. And, and you find people in this, in this church family, to, to emulate, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Paul, as I said, also displays that ministry is done to be done together. We, we do it together. And, and, and we should function in that way. That we should minister and this church together as a team and not just as lone rangers. Another thing we notice here, and I don't want to go too far off this, but I just think it's important. Epaphroditus teaches us that there's no such thing as a risk-free life of service. There's no such thing as a risk-free life of service. Perhaps you've been living that way. But you take risks all the time. You've taken hundreds of risks today. You took a risk by sitting on that chair hoping that it would hold you and not break. We take risks all the time. God's the only one who doesn't take risks because he knows everything. So you may think I'm just really careful, but I'm, I'm talking not just this. I'm talking about for your life. Are you willing to give over your life in service to God and for the church no matter where God would take you? You know, you hired a former missionary as a pastor, so I'm always going to talk about this. It was fun moving to Sweden. Uh, Seriously. Work? Absolutely. Hard? You betcha. But it was fun. So are you willing to go anywhere God would have you? Or are you saying, no, I, I can't. That's too much of a risk. Are you holding back your life for yourself? You know, we don't have to fear where God will take us because we always have Jesus Christ. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging. And he goes with us. In fact, to not rest in Jesus is to risk your life. And you will lose it. John G. Payton was a missionary to the South Sea in the 19th century. 
You may have heard this story before he left. He was warned by an aging Christian of the danger of the country. The old man said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Peyton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. That means you're really old. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make little difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. It's not until the resurrection that we will enjoy the full result of redemption of our bodies. Resurrection will accomplish for our bodies what regeneration has done for our souls. And it's coming. And we need to live in light of that. And, and yet, to give our lives for Jesus appears glorious. To pour our, ourselves for others, maybe even paying the high price of martyrdom, as it seems. And so many think, okay, this is what I need to do then. Just saying this, I need to, be, I need to risk and, and go anywhere. And, and you think, then, then, then I'll, I'll give over my life, like giving a, my life is $1,000. I'm going to lay it on the table and say, Lord, spend it anywhere you want. Spend it as you see fit. But in reality, for everyone, Christians who live here and missionaries who live in the other country, is our $1,000 is spent in increments of 25 cents at a time. We, we live our lives spending 50 cents here, 25 cents there. Now, what do you mean, Jeff? Well, we, when we serve our neighbors, when it's easier to ignore them, 50 cents. When we listen to coworkers' issues and try to counsel them and patiently listen to foolishness, 25 cents. When we serve by making peanut butter and jam sandwiches for the homeless people, 50 cents. When we take time to read the Bible with a friend who has lots of questions, 75 cents. See, most of our lives are spent 25 cents at a time. And it would be easier to go out in a flash of glory but it's harder to serve one small act at a time. Faithful Christian living is pouring out our lives little by little, 25 cents at a time. And that's what the Christian life looks like, whether you live it here in Edgewood or if you move to another country. Missionary life was spent 25 cents at a time. Talking to my neighbors stumbling through Swedish. It was the same. I just did it in a different country. The point is willingness to be given for God in service, wherever that is. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to risk the safety and security you have here to serve others for the glory of God? Do we openly champion and, and, and honor those that do these labors? Or do we just value praise for ourselves? I, I really want you to think as we end this time, can you name some people whose Christian walk you admire? And then thinking through, why do I admire them? This is a great topic to have over lunch today, okay? Don't talk about the weather, politics. Eh. Talk about this. Who do you admire and why?
If you don't have anyone for lunch, call up a friend. Talk through this. My pastor mentioned this, told me I needed to do this. I'm going to follow through. Talk through this. And look to emulate those that follow this pattern of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And when you see someone in the church serving Christ faithfully, you should encourage them. You should thank them for serving. Parents, I I don't know if you do this, but if you drop your kid off every week, tell those that workers, thank you for serving. Thank you for taking my child away from me for an hour and a half. It was glorious. I love them, but thank you. Thank you of giving up of yourself. For those that prepare coffee, for those that set up chairs, for those, there's, there's hundreds of things. Have your eyes open to that and show honor to those that are serving sacrificially so that we can gather and we can worship and we can enjoy this time. And yet, in all this, I don't want us to walk out thinking, boy, what servants we have here at this church. I truly want us to walk out here this morning thinking, what a Savior we serve. Because those servants think that. You know, we're going to spend, we've got more things to do this morning, okay? Today's a full morning. But we're going to turn our attention to the communion table. And then we're going to sing the doxology. And then we're going to install a new elder this morning. So, Stick with us. That's why my sermon was a little shorter. We come to the Lord's Supper, though, and we come to the time to remember the atonement of our sins by the Lord Jesus. We come to the table where we remember that our sins are shown for what they really are before a holy God. Everyone's putting their Bible away. Stay with me. It's significant. What we do here is significant. When we, when we understand this communion service, our hearts should burn within us with love for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we're reminded of all that Jesus suffered for us as Christians. And our faith in Jesus Christ is strengthened as we take this meal together as a family. We remind ourselves of, of, our, of our commitment with one another and with the Lord. So we not only hear with our ears this morning what he's done for us, but we also can see and smell and taste and touch pictures of it. There's no save, these elements don't save you, friends, but they're pictures for us to understand Jesus' suffering and death for us on, on our behalf. Jesus is teaching us that just as the bread and drink nourish our temporal life here, so his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourishes our spiritual lives. And so the the Lord's Supper, this supper, is significant to the Christian and to the church. I want to have the ushers come up here now. As as they're coming, I just want want to give one warning. This meal is for Christians, okay? This is for forgiven Christians because only Christians understand the gospel. 
So if you're not a Christian and, and not following the Lord, not connected to a church family, I would encourage you to not partake of this meal. Just watch. Observe us. And, and as the elders hand out the communion elements, I, I want you to wait and we'll partake it together. There's two cups that are in there. The bottom one has the bread, the top one has the juice. And we're going to do this together. So just listen to when I say that and I'm going to pray and we'll partake together. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather as the church to sit under your word preached. And we pray now that we will remember the cross. Your body and blood shed for us in the cross, Jesus. It redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God. And may we remember that this morning as we eat together as a church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.